Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Once again, um, as we continue our walk and study of the book of Acts, come with me uh, to Acts chapter 2. This morning we're finishing up chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 42 of the text. Hear God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the, pro- the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Anyone with a cursory knowledge of the scriptures uh, will know that Christianity is inherently a corporate religion. There is no escaping the reality that Christianity cannot cannot be done outside the resources and structures of an organized community. The leaders in a Christian church are chosen corporately. The means of grace by which we are spurred on are corporate. The sanctioned activities of Christianity are generally corporate. And the control measures by which an individual joins or leaves identification with Christianity, that is baptism and church discipline, have a distinctly corporate nature. Now, while this is evident, many people give false reasons for why that is. Some, for example, claim that Christianity is an organized religion because it is a societal power structure created to subjugate people. This is a popular opinion these days. Some others say it is an organized religion because it is there to bring order to society and thus needs to be controlled in some form or fashion. While these explanations of the organized community nature of Christianity feel intellectually stimulating, they are rather off the mark, way off the mark. Um, 
Christianity is a, is a corporate religion. That is, Christianity is a religion to be done with others because God is recreating humanity in the image of Jesus Christ. You see, what we have in the text in front of us is the first time the Spirit of God dwelt in an entire community of people. In the past, the Spirit of God would come down among the people and, be, and would be with certain people for certain tasks. But here what we have, as we close chapter 2, is a humanity that is completely unique in history. A group of people whom the Holy Spirit, God, the maker of heaven and earth, dwells in. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of this day, when God makes a new, superior covenant with his people. And it is superior in this sense, this is what Jeremiah points to, that the law of God will be written in their hearts, and God will be their God in a superior way, in a real way, because God will be among them and in them. Now, when the Spirit of God dwells with the people, they organize into a community. Unlike what is popular today, here in the text, when the Spirit falls on the people and indwells them, they are not marked by being unable to control themselves or having all kinds of movements and shakings, but rather they are marked by a serious change in who they are collectively. When the, Spirit, when the Holy Spirit descends on the people here, their priorities change. Their proclivities change. Their allegiances change. Their tastes change. Their hopes and dreams change. Their enemies and friends change. The way they use their money changes. And how and when they spend their devotion changes completely. And what's more is that they change as a group. In our text, the Holy Spirit has changed over 3,000 people after Peter's sermon. We saw this last week. 3,000 people were converted after, preacher, after Peter told them of their guilt. And they asked what, what can be done for them. And then they were offered free forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. And they grabbed a hold of it. And here now, the Holy Spirit has created this new community. Some of these people might have been enemies, perhaps. Some of them might have been text collectors and those who are not text collectors, not liking each other. Some, have been, some of them might have been slaves and slave owners. All of that now, all of those, dis, those, those marks that distinguish them are now in their past. They are now united in a reality that goes beyond their previous lives. These people, these 3,000, are the first converts to apostolic Christianity. And they join the apostles and the 120, the 120 that we've been with throughout chapter 2, they join that 120 and the apostles to form a new humanity, a humanity that has the Spirit of God in them. In describing this group of people, Luke here first tells us in verse 42 what changed for them was their devotion. What changed is their devotion. Look at verse 42. Look at verse 42 with me. And they devoted themselves to these four realities. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread, and the prayers. 
The concept of devotion is not one that is hard to understand. In this particular verse, Luke is conveying to us that this is what they gave themselves to. This is what they pursued. This is what they did not neglect. These are the things that became uh, important, they became paramount in their lives as a collective. Apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, I want you to notice that these people obviously were devoted to other things as well in their general lives. They were probably devoted to their families. They were also devoted to their jobs. They were devoted to living in a holy fashion. But Luke's interest here is what they were devoted to as a group. He wants to take our minds away from them as individuals and put our minds right to where they are as a group, as a pack. What they were devoted to as this organized group of people. Don't miss this, dear friends. The big picture of Christianity is depicted as a team sport. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, the focus was a singular person, Jesus Christ. But here in Acts, and in the subsequent storylines of the Bible, the focus is not a human being, but Christians as a group. Of course, Christ working in them and the Spirit working in them. But when we're talking about who we're following and who we're paying attention to, it's now this group, this group which will later be called Christians, the disciples. Um, Christianity is inherently a team sport. I imagine the way a singles tennis player trains is different from the way a rugby player trains. Now, I've never trained as a singles tennis player or a rugby player, so forgive me if you know more about them than I do. If a tennis player, in my mind, is brilliant on their own, they will be great. They will know greatness because you just have to get, get great at your own game, train on your own. But a rugby player will never taste greatness if he is brilliant on his own. The very way that a rugby player trains is in a pack. A scrum requires the whole pack of eight men to function. Even the brilliant and fast wingers Need to, be, need to be in defensive formation when the team is defending. The reality in this text is that as a group, these Christians had a set of priorities. As a group, the way they trained, the way they lived, was together in these priorities. You will destroy yourself if you confuse Christianity with tennis. Christianity is not like singles tennis. It is not just about a singular person doing what seems right before God on their own. Christianity is rather more like rugby. We're together. We're united. We move as a pack, as a group. Now let me take a moment to say this as we're about to delve deeper into studying this text in front of us. We need to uh, have a, a few disclaimers here. As we study this community here of Jerusalem believers, there are a number of differences between them and us that we must be aware of if you are going to understand this text properly. 
First, the first difference is that they lived at the time of the switch of focus in God's redemptive plan from Israel to the nations. This means that we will find a lot of Old Old Testament practices among them, and that should not shake us or shake our faith. That was part because they lived in that time of a switch of the two focuses. Second, um, this is a the here this here in front of us was the birth of the Christian church. There were a lot of things that were not mature yet. Okay, as we see the practices and things that they were doing, there were a lot of things that were not mature yet that were to be formalized into maturity by the apostles' teaching later on. So as things move, the apostles are going to teach on things and things are going to become more clearer and there will be more uh, maturity later. So just so I say this because just because we see something happen here with these believers does not necessarily mean that we should expect to see them today or necessarily that we should, ex- we should try to emulate them. And thirdly, an important thing, uh, an uh, often uh, uh, neglected difference is this one. This church in front of us, the Jerusalem church at the the birth of New Testament Christianity, had apostles among them. And because these apostles who were Christianity's foundational teachers were there among them, there will inevitably be miracles and signs and wonders happening at will, um, which which we will not see because the apostles are no longer Around. So we have to have that in mind among us when we're thinking about how to learn from this, this uh, initial, this first church of Christianity. With that said, let's consider each of these four things that the church devoted itself to. We're first, we're first told that their first priority, the thing that they devoted themselves to, was the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. They were committed to hearing God's word from the apostles together as a corporate entity sitting under God's word and being instructed for life and godliness. Now, the apostles' teaching is the primary teaching of Christianity. I've said this before and it needs to be said again. The apostles, the, the, the primary authoritative teachers of the Christian church are the apostles. And what's more, they're all dead. Which means then that the primary authoritative teaching of the church is to be found in their words, their writings. And of course, the writings of those who heard them uh, when they were alive. Some of the differences between this church and our church today is that they didn't have pastors. This church in front of us didn't actually have pastors, they had apostles. Um, In contrast, we have pastors. And pastors are given to us to not give us authoritative, new authoritative teaching. To not go to find, to become sources of new teaching, but rather to explain to us apostolic teaching for our day see so pastors that we're given are different from them what they had that day they had the apostles and the apostles were just producing authoritative teaching teaching that's binding for the church throughout the ages 
But pastors today do not have that privilege. As, as, as wonderful as Michael is, what he says does not bind everyone. Uh, we, 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 pastors today do not have that authority. Um, that authority was for the apostles. This is extremely important to understand. So when we come together to hear God's word, we are coming together not necessarily to hear from the pastor, we're coming to hear from the apostles as the pastor explains what the apostles taught. You with me? This is extremely important because there is an extreme, there is a desire to come with something new. There's a, there's a desire to come with new teaching, with teaching that is interesting, that sounds fresh. But for us to emulate this church, to be dedicated to apostolic teaching, means that we're dedicated to the teaching that is found in the 66 books of the Bible. So, in the same way that they made it a practice, we make it a practice. To dedicate ourselves to come and to hear God's word from the words that are written down. The second thing that they dedicated themselves to was the fellowship. You see that the apostles are teaching and the fellowship. This word here, fellowship, means participation or sharing freely. They were, in real terms, partners together. This idea of fellowship has in it participation in a common task. They saw themselves as allies and they recognized in each other eternal friendship. And of course this meant that they led lives of sharing with each other. J.I. Packer notes that there is a world of difference between biblical fellowship and mere social activities. The word for fellowship has the idea of something that is common or shared. So fellowship means a common participation in something by either giving what you have to the other person or, and this is extremely important, people in Johannesburg, receiving what the other person has. It's not just you always giving. It must sometimes it's you receiving from what the other person has. That is part of biblical fellowship. Give and take is the essence of this idea of fellowship here. I give, you take, I take, you give. And give and take must be the way of fellowship in the common life of the body of Christ. See, Christian fellowship is two-dimensional. And it has, to be, it has to be first vertical before it can be horizontal. We must know the reality of fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, before we can know the real reality of fellowship with each other in our common relationship to God. The person who is not in fellowship with the Father and the Son is no Christian at all and so cannot share with the Christians in the realities of their fellowship. You see, because it's not just social activities. This is a, a real partnership that goes beyond a mere tea and coffee. Now, tea and coffee is great and useful, but this, our fellowship, our partnering with together goes beyond that. If you read how the word is used throughout the New Testament, you'll find that most of the time it has the idea of hardship there. We're told by Paul that we are to, fellow, we are to share in the fellowship and participate um, in Christ's sufferings together. 
Paul, when he was talking to the Philippians, he says they partook with him in the ministry by taking care of him while he was in prison. A fellowship means that even while we're together, it could be hard, but we are together in the midst of it being hard. Uh, A fellowship does not necessarily just mean fun times uh, and joy. Now, in this text, that's primarily what we see. But it goes beyond just the fun times and joy when we're all rejoicing. It also goes to when there is hardship um, and we give and take to one another in those situations as well. The third thing that they devoted themselves to is the breaking of bread. That is communion. Um, Together they would gather to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The Lord Jesus had instituted the breaking of bread and the cup when he was with the twelve. And now this full community was participating in this remembrance meal of remembering what was done to them. The communion table is a table of celebration of what God has done and a proclamation of what God has done in Christ Jesus until the Lord Jesus returns. It is a means of grace for us when we remember that we were bought at a high price and we together encourage one another, eating it together, we encourage one another to to live in light of that reality waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. And let me encourage you that a life of communion, of, of breaking bread with, Christ, with Christians, is an important part of who you are as a Christian. It is not an optional aspect of your life as a Christian. It is an essential one. Uh, to break bread with the brothers, to be encouraged together, to remember why it is that we believe. To remember why it is that we're even here. We're not here because we're so great. We're not here because we're able to keep the law. We're here because Jesus Christ was killed on a cross so that we might be reconciled to Him and to one another. And so communion is an essential part of the Christian life. And finally, the corporate prayers is the last thing that they dedicated, they devoted themselves to. They they devoted themselves to praying together to God. Now notice... He does not say they devoted themselves to prayer, but he says to the prayers. Uh, some, of your, some of your translations don't actually have that definite article, but that definite article is there. They devoted themselves to the prayers, to a particular set of prayers in particular. And these prayers that they devoted themselves to were likely uh, the, the, the set Jewish prayers in the temple. Um, you can see this actually if you, if you toss your eyes to Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. We'll see that uh, next, next week actually when we go to Acts uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, you see there in chapter 3 verse 1 says, One day at 3 in the afternoon, the hour of prayer, um, Peter and John were on their way to the temple. They were on their way to the temple to pray at the set times of prayer. The reason it is important to note this difference is because these were set prayers and they clearly devoted themselves to those set prayers. This is not just them praying you know, alone in their own rooms at home. This is the prayers that were set uh, that the Israelite nation were to pray at together as a community. What this recognizes is that there is a special blessing when the people of God pray together. 
Oftentimes, God even speaks of it. He says in Chronicles that if the people who are called by my name prayed and humbled themselves, I would hear them and heal their land. Many people today make the claim that there is no need for me to go to church and be with other Christians because, hey, I can pray at home. God hears me, right? He's not located at the church building, so I can pray at home. But what this fails to acknowledge is the joy that is there when believers come together and pray for one another and pray together. Now, corporate prayer, praying together, does not mean that we are all praying at the same time. right? But rather that we pray together. That we pray in unison. Uh, Meaning perhaps that in some situations, uh, someone among us prays on our behalf and we all say, Amen. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 16, Paul points to that being the key element for us praying together. He says, it is important for others in the church to be able to say Amen when someone prays. That is why it is, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 is saying, you shouldn't be praying in tongues because nobody can hear you. When you're praying, it's important. You can go read it, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, particularly verse 16. When you're praying, others should be able to say amen, should be able to agree. Because the point is that we're here together to agree in our prayers. Uh, To be able to to agree when somebody gives thanks or when someone makes a supplication to the Lord, um, that is really the key. Uh, We we pray with one voice of fellowship. Now, these four things devoted to in normalcy, in normal normal times, of course, uh, provide the bedrock of Christian corporate practice. Without devotion to the word, without devotion to fellowship, to communion, and to praying together as a general principle, it is hard to claim historic apostolic Christianity. And this is what, what, what apostolic, the historic Christianity looks like. The church comes together to devote themselves to these things, to prayer, to, to, to hear the word, Uh, to fellowship with one another, and to break bread. Now, at the same time that they were living this way, uh, they were were in awe of the signs and power that God was showing through the apostles. Look at verse 43 with me. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The signs and wonders being done through the apostles had the same function as the signs and wonders being done through the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was to authenticate the message. In Jesus' case, the signs and wonders were there to authenticate Jesus' own claims of divinity. We saw that when we looked at Luke chapter 5. And in the apostles' case, it was to authenticate their witness to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. 
The reason then that we do not see signs happening and, and happening miracles and signs all around us all the time, and the reason we're not seeing this happen even in our own church all the time, is because the message has been authenticated and all the apostles, including the apostle untimely born, which we will meet in chapter 9, all of them are dead. They were the ones who were particularly for that purpose, doing miracles and signs at will, to prove that the message that they're, that they're teaching, this new message that they're teaching, was accurate and from God. There is no need to keep re-authenticating the message. In fact, church history proves this. After the, the apostolic and sub-apostolic groups, the, 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 the miracles and just start disappearing very quickly. Um, it's not really uh, until, really, in, in a real big sense, you don't really start hearing a lot about miracles and prophecies until about the 1800s, and we can talk about that, but there's, there's a, an entirely different reason uh, for that. The reality, though, is that Christian history bears witness to this fact, uh, that miracles and signs were for that apostolic group to be done at will. However, just because we're not seeing miracles and signs does not mean that we do not have reason to be in awe. Why? Because the apostolic message is still producing wonderful things. The apostolic message is still producing wonderful things. When people's lives are transformed because of the wonder of regeneration, there is reason for us to be in awe. When God takes a human being who is sinful, addicted, completely lost in sin and changes that person to loving God and loving his neighbor, that is a reason to be in awe. When a marriage is redeemed because the spouses have applied God's word to themselves and the spirit has changed them, there is a reason for us to be awed. We should not lose amazement and thankfulness to God because of the word, because the words of the apostles applied by the Spirit are still changing lives. In contrast, now pay attention to this. Be wary of people trying to bring you to amazement with wonders and signs that are not accompanied by the Spirit's transformative work. Be very wary of people who are trying to get you to be amazed at the signs when there is no spirit transforming people's lives. Be wary, dear saints, when the words of the apostles and the working of the spirit are seemingly disconnected. When all you're seeing is supposed signs, but you're not hearing a lot of the apostolic message. The Spirit confirms the words of Jesus and his apostles. The Spirit does not confirm and bring to amazement in an atmosphere where Jesus is not exalted and the apostles' words are not heeded to. The apostles' words, which is Christ crucified and people's lives being changed, being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that is what the Spirit confirms. That is where the Spirit is. The Spirit is where the Apostles' words are highly heeded to and highly prized. The Spirit is not where the Apostles' words are put aside and the main attraction is the wonders and signs. Are you with me? Test the work of the Spirit where you are. 
by whether or not you are hearing the words of the apostles being listened to and obeyed. If you don't see the words of the apostles being listened to and obeyed, what you're seeing is not the work of the Spirit. In verse 44 and verse 45, we're also told how they dealt with their finances uh, with regards to their fellowship. Come with me to verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. These people were devoted to partnership with each other to such a degree that they could not bear to witness one of them going without daily needs. What happened here is that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which unites them in heavenly unity, permeated, went into their lives to such a degree that they had a real and effectual care for those in their midst. They now saw it as a priority to care for one another's physical needs. The active nature of the description in front of us suggests that the people were doing this of their own accord. There does not seem to be any law given by the apostles on this, but rather the people themselves were voluntarily sharing the things that they had, not counting anything that they have as their own. They were voluntarily selling some of their possessions and voluntarily distributing to any as had need. What we're seeing here is the fulfillment of what God prophesied through Jeremiah. That the law of the Lord will be written in man's hearts and men will act on it. And here they are, acting on it without being told. They're doing it because the need is there and they love one another. In a pure way, we see here a godly people, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in them, deciding to help those in the new covenant community. Dear friends, allow me to say this rather strongly. True and practical love for other Christians is a real reflection of the gospel's work in our hearts. True and practical love for other believers is a real reflection of the gospel's work in our hearts. To such a degree that its absence, the absence of love and effectual care for other believers, other Christians, brings into question whether or not the gospel has done anything to you. Brings to question whether or not Jesus Christ is prized by you. Uh, The New Testament has a lot to say about this. All the writers of the New Testament say something about this. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. John, the apostle, says, if anyone says, I love God and does not love his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And when he says brother, he's meaning that's the word that was that's a term that John uses for Christian. But not only do they tell us that we are to love one another, but they also clarify what love for each other looks like. 
James, another writer of the New Testament, says, It does our brother no good to tell him that we love him and that we're praying for him, but we're not doing anything for his physical needs if we're able to. So you can't say to your brother, I love you, brother, and I'm praying for you. Go, go with God when you're not doing anything with this brother of yours who's going home to starve. That's not true Christianity. Paul, another writer of the New Testament, says he weighs in on this himself and explains to us that it is a matter of proving whether or not our love is genuine. If our love is truly real, if it's not fake, right? if it's truly real, then it will be seen in taking care of the physical needs of our brothers and sisters who are currently without the means or ability to do so for themselves. It is a test of your, of your love, um, whether or not it is a Hong Kong or whether or not it is the real Magoya. More than this being a matter of commands to us, dear saints, it is a matter of a proper understanding of the gospel. Hold your place in the book of Acts and come with me to, to Titus chapter 3. And I want to show you something here. Titus chapter 3. Hold your place in, in, in Acts. We'll come back in a moment. But look at what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 3. I'll start reading from verse 3. Look at how he explains us. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What is he saying? He's saying that those of us in Christ have been rescued from living a life of emptiness and vain pursuit. We were chasing things that don't matter. We were tossed to and fro by things that don't matter. We were hating each other. We were hating, passing our days in uselessness. But then God, through his mercy, came into our lives by his power to change us and unite us with him. But when he gave us the Holy Spirit, you see that he says, the Spirit given richly to us. The Holy Spirit was given to us, not in a, not in a meager sense, but in a richly, in a rich way, such that we have him, he's with us all the time. So that we can become heirs together. We, in the church, belonging to God, have become co-heirs together with Christ Jesus. And this, that's this reality becomes the very reason for our care and fellowship and love for each other. He says there in verse 8, 
that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The main engine that drives us caring for another, loving one another, is the fact that we have been united with God. Do not see your caring for other Christians or your love for other Christians as a, as a reality that's separate from your Christianity. It is not. It is united in a real way. It is the overflow. It is the proof of the fact that you have been united and you have become an heir together with God. And let me, let me, let me just open this up to anyone who's in here who has not tasted this life. The life of, the, of having the Holy Spirit with you, changing you, reforming you, drawing you to God, causing love to overflow out of you. Let me encourage you to come to Christ. You see, because only in Christ can you get the Holy Spirit. Only in Christ can you get un- unity with God. Only in Christ can you be drawn in and become an heir uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in Christ can the whole world be given to you. There is a, a new humanity that God has created, is working on creating, and it started with this group. Well, it didn't necessarily only start here. There's the the new the church was there even in the Old Testament. Of course, Paul tells us this, but visibly started in this new in this group here and permeated throughout church history. And the the the, the number is not yet closed. There is still vacancies available for any and all who want to have real and lasting fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. Now, the reality here of our love for one another is straightforward and the implication is heavy with practical meaning for believers. We're told often and often in the New Testament uh, that we are to do good firstly to those in the household of the faith. We are to look to after our own, whether in front of us or out there in the nations. We've recently as a church had the opportunity to to participate in this, not just loving each other here, but also in sending our love uh, to the brothers and sisters in Durban who uh, who had suffered because of those riots a few months back. That is a wonderful thing for us to do, and long may it continue, because we are called, you have to think about this, why is it? that we are not necessarily told, first thing, to give uh, all of our resources for the benefit of Durban as a whole city, or to take care of the whole of KZN, regardless of creed. Uh, The reality is because our first affinity, our first love, where our love flows first to, is those who are called by the same name that we are called. Those who share an inheritance that we share, and we cannot sit here by while they starve and we have the means. It works like that in the universal church. It works like that even here in, a, in this local church together. But this does not necessarily only just mean that we have to give of our possessions and our money. Uh, this means a lot more than this. See, our fellowship goes way beyond just physical needs. There are other needs that are there. Some of you know we have a lot of students here, and students are known for one thing, asking for lifts. They love to ask for lifts, and they love to ask for food, because these are the things that they don't have. So you can share that with them. But when you share that with them, you don't just only share that with them. You can even share your very lives 
Well, I remember when, when I came up to Johannesburg, I only knew, I mean, maybe this is a bit of an exaggeration, but I generally had only one friend in Johannesburg, my friend Kani. It's the only guy that I had, only friend that I had. And when I came here to Johannesburg, we came together, that very next Sunday, we came to this church together, and we found a home here. And I remember those weekends subsequent after that, Kani and I, uh, we'd be together with the brothers hanging out, or sometimes I'd sneak out and go hang out with the Lopshas to eat their food, or the Bowdichins to eat more of their food. Because you see, I was a single man and I needed uh, some fellowship. But what did I gain? I didn't just gain food there. I, I saw how a family works. I saw what a Christian family looks like. I had in front of me a husband and a wife and children, and I saw all the, all the different things and how all of those things work. In a, in a manner that I did not have exposure to before. That is a story of many people here. And so you have that opportunity to not just share your food, although it is greatly appreciated, to share also your lives amongst each other. And this also goes even just for you, when you're, when you're perhaps you're a single person or you're alone, that you can share your life with other Christians in a different, in a different way. You can... You can be a source of comfort and friendship for people who are here who've left home far away. You have a real family here among God's people. Uh, we do not just share our food and physical things. We also share our very lives to each other, with each other. If anyone struggles to understand what church membership is, this is it. When we encourage church membership, we are encouraging being counted among the saints so that we, we can facilitate real and meaningful fellowship and partnership with one another. See, because all we have in the scriptures, the way the scriptures talk, in the way that the Lord Jesus speaks, in the way that the apostles speak, all we have is each other. Jesus says, who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? Who's really my blood? Those who belong to God. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. He now summarizes this whole section by telling us a few more pieces of information about this group, this 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 forming church here. First, he tells us that day by day, they were attending the temple together. You see this? There is some theological confusion with regards to this. Uh, this is because at the temple, they were still doing things in the old covenant way. The daily worship of the Jews at the temple consisted of a burnt offering and incense in the morning and in the afternoon carried on by the priests. And of course, a crowd would then gather in the courtyard and receive a blessing from the priests. The question is, why did these Christians take part in this? So religiously, day by day, Christ Jesus has died, the Spirit has come down, there was no need for a temple or sacrifices. In fact, the temple had been torn when the Lord Jesus died. Well, this is where there is another element uh, that had not occurred yet, which is maturity in practice. The Jewish church here was still very Jewish, and the conversations 
and the apostolic doctrine that would lead to conclusions that these things are not necessary were to come later. What you have here is simply a case of an immature church with an immature practice. Breaking bread, it says they're attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. The idea here is that they were having fellowship even together with their home, in their homes, enjoying meals, breaking the bread of fellowship together in, the, in their homes, enjoying meals together, rejoicing as they do so. As you would know, joy, rejoicing in that sense, uh, in God is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. There is a joy that accompanies those who are truly in Christ, those who know that they have an eternity Uh, waiting for them that is superior to anything that they have known. And so they they get together in their homes, eating, rejoicing together. But not only does he say that, but he also goes on to say that they were having favor with all the people. Do you see this? They were having favor with all the people. Now this is an interesting phrase. And the last time Luke used a similar phrase was to describe Jesus Christ back in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. He said, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. So what does this mean? What does it mean that they were going, that they were having favor with all the people, all these Jews and all these other people that were in Jerusalem, they were having favor with them. Why is he saying that they were having favor with them? Well, here's an important point. Contrary to popular belief, everyone hating you is not a badge of Christianity. Everyone thinking that you are a jerk is not a badge of your Christianity. The scriptures often emphasizes that Christians, if they live in a quiet and godly fashion, there should be no problems with the people around us. You see this in the, elder, in, the, in the qualifications for elders. What is one of the qualifications for elders? That he must be above reproach. He must be well thought of by who? Outsiders. If someone is only well thought of in the church, but when we see everyone else outside of the church, they think he's a jerk, that person is not qualified to be, a, to be an elder in the church. That is a sign of maturity, that you're not going around causing fights and causing issues. We're also told elsewhere that we must stay away from everything that has the appearance of evil. So that people outside us do not think that we are are mainly just people who do all kinds of evil things, even if they're wrong. We want to stay away even from the appearance of evil. In fact, I think I said this at the beginning of 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 this book, that one of the core themes... Uh, that Luke traces throughout this book is to prove to the Romans and to prove to everyone that Christianity was not a, a religion that was causing problems. People where Christianity landed, the only people who were causing problems were religious leaders, but the people around were having no problems. And there, were, there was nothing, there was no guilt among the religious leaders of Christianity. And that is why there's often exoneration after exoneration that we see throughout the book of Acts. But of course we have to nuance this because Jesus did say that you are blessed, you are happy if others speak all manner of evil of you because of my name. 
So there will become a time when because of your righteousness that others will, will, will dislike you. But in general, uh, the Christian church is not one that lands in an area and just sticks its nose up to everyone and starts causing issues. We grow, we, we generally have favor with all the people if we are doing what God calls us to, to live lives uh, godly and quiet in the way that Paul tells us in, uh, in, um, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5. And of course he tells us here that day by day uh, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The Lord in his mercy saved more among them. The number was, com- was not complete. Of course these 3,000 weren't just the final group that God was going to save. But more and more as they were living this way, doing what God calls them to, they, God was adding more, saving more people among them and bringing them in. But you have to think about what you're hearing when you hear the Lord was added to their number, those who were being saved. Think about what you're hearing. It means that daily the Lord was taking people out of darkness. Think about this. It means that the, the Lord was so merciful that daily He was bringing out from, right, from unrighteousness, bringing out from the shackles of sin, bringing out from the dominion of the devil rescuing people here and there and adding them to this new humanity. That is why it is a great hope and a a prayer for us as a church that the Lord would do this even among us. That people would be rescued more and more, rescued, taken out of darkness, taken out of slavery to sin and being united with God and having the Holy Spirit in them. Let us pray to that end as a church that this as we live in a manner that our apostolic fathers live, as we, as we seek to emulate them, as we walk in this way, uh, uh, ensuring that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, following God's word, we can pray and ask that the Lord would add more here in Johannesburg and beyond, rescuing people around us, rescuing them and adding them to our number. Let's pray. Yes, Lord Jesus, you are indeed uh, the foundation of the church. You are our creed and our confession. You are our love. Uh, You are the one that we exalt highly above everything. We do pray, O Lord, that you would add more to our number. And we pray first that we would be like these believers, um, sincere in our devotion, loving one another with a sincere love. Uh, deep love and also Lord that as we, 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 we follow what you have laid out for us to follow in uh, as a church that you would be adding more to our number as you have rescued us from darkness you would rescue others from darkness and you would do so liberally and freely and more and more we pray this in Christ's name Amen Well,